Hey, hey, beer fans. Welcome to Experimental Brewing with Denny and Drew. I'm Denny Kahn. And I'm Drew Beecham. Together, we're the authors of Experimental Homebrewing, Mad Science in the Pursuit of Great Beer, and Homebrew All-Stars, where we interview 25 of the world's best brewers and steal their tips, tricks, and secrets straight out of their mind for your brain pan's consumption. So now between the two of us, we have nearly 40 years of homebrewing experience. I'm the guy known for weird beer and strange ideas. And I'm the guy who's known for questioning the conventional wisdom and coming up with a way to check it out. Oh yeah, and on today's episode, well, we have a lot to do. So we got uh, some correctional stuff that happened because the Correctional Department of Corrections contacted us to correct something. We have the pub where we're going to do what we always do, cover some of the beer life, understand some of the news, including, I think, one of the funniest stories I've ever read. But we'll also then drop into the library to go talk, well, really what you need to know in order to learn how to make Lambic. Stop by the brewery for a couple of really great, you know, open source hoppy announcements. And then in the lounge, we'll be stopping and talking to the Bills, Bill Sobieski and Dr. Bill Sislak of Wild Barrel Brewing Company in San Marcos, California. They've been open for 30 days, but it should be no surprise if you recognize those names to know that they're already kicking butt with their beers. And then, of course, we'll answer some questions. We'll give you a quick tip. Something other, and we will get you back onto the way to your beery, beery life. Yeah, so uh, there's a lot of stuff coming up today. Grab yourself a beer, unless you're driving. Settle back and join us right after this word from our sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Pico Brew, makers of the Zymatic and Pico Brewing Systems. The brewing systems of the future are here now. Discover how easy and rewarding it is to make great beer with Pico Brew. And by Craftmeister and BTF Iota 4. When you absolutely, positively need to make every surface clean, bust out the cleaners with professional power and home brewer safety. Make better beer with better chemistry. Choose Craftmeister. And by the American Homebrewers Association, a community of more than 46,000 beer lovers. Since 1978, the AHA and its members have worked to promote and celebrate the homebrewing hobby and community. Join today for six issues of Zymergy Magazine, AHA member discounts on beer, food, and brewing supplies, access to exclusive events and competitions, and a bunch of other cool stuff that'll take too long to list here. Head over to homebrewersassociation.org or experimentalbrew.com and get yourself a membership. And by you, our listeners, go to experimentalbrew.com to help support us. Click on the Patreon link to donate whatever amount you'd like to help support us and our charities. Click on the Brew Your Own Magazine link to subscribe to BYO. Or click on the HA link to join the American Homebrewers Association and receive a subscription to Zymergy Magazine. Part of the proceeds from those go to help support the podcast. Thanks for your support. Hey, we're back and we're ready to get this show on the road. We're going to start off with a few announcements. First one is that the new episode of the Brew Files came out a week ago. And uh, it's a technique and method show with Drew and our good buddy Kent Fletcher, alias Fletch, talking about their method for making beer more like champagne. Yeah, a little a little bit of a brute technology, brute force methodology, just so you can go make your own beer brute, or as we like to say, call out the brute squad with method champenoise. 
And we also want to remind you that if you're in the market for a Pico Brew Zymatic machine, you can get 300 bucks off when you go to the company website at picobrew.com and order it. When you go to checkout, enter the code PicoDenny, P-I-C-O-D-E-N-N-Y, and you'll get 300 bucks off on a brand new Zymatic. Uh, Drew and I have them. We love them. And as a matter of fact, I'm in the process of designing a new experiment that uh, is all based on using mines. So hopefully uh, I'll be getting a chance to brew with it real soon and we'll have some interesting information for you. All right. And then finally, a last announcement is, you know, every year Denny and I speak at uh, AHA's HomebrewCon. Well, we have to make a presentation in order to present. And so can you. So if you're actually the kind of person who feels passionate about a beery subject and want to actually talk to hundreds of people, you can go to the AHA's website and actually submit an idea for presentation. Uh, so, yeah, or hey, look, if you have an idea, but you don't want to speak, throw it in there anyway and, and have them go find somebody. <laughs> but yeah, the HA takes uh, all sorts of ideas, you know, obviously brewing techniques, styles, food pairings, uh, talk about how you make mead, talk about, you know, anything that you can think of that's beer related. Give a submission. It doesn't cost you anything. And if you are selected, you actually get to attend the conference for free. Yeah, really. It's a, it's a pretty cool deal, and uh, you get to share your information and experience with other people. And before we get started with the rest of the show, don't forget that you can support the podcast by leaving us a review in Apple Podcasts. Click the Amazon, AHA, or BYO links on the website, and by going to Patreon and pledging a buck or two or more to our charitable cause, which for this part of the year is... Our charitable cause for this part of the year is Axel's Angels and the Desi Strong Foundation, which is helping fund care and treatment of pediatric cancer which is a great great thing if you've been uh, following our facebook page you can see that uh, right now we're supporting our friend uh, miguel loza also who uh, has a little girl sarah who is uh, suffering from cancer so uh, we've actually uh, been uh, publicizing his GoFundMe page to help with that. Yeah, we'll include a link for that. Uh, yes, we certainly will. So if you can come up with a few extra bucks besides uh, supporting our other charities, toss some Miguel's way. He's a wonderful guy, a uh, great story, and uh, he's he could use some help now, uh, both monetarily and moral support. So check out the story on Facebook if you're on there, and uh, check out the link that we'll post on our website. Yeah, I'm not even sure Damien, as a nine-year-old, should get cancer. Cancer. <laughs> yeah, man. No kid deserves it. No person deserves it. But especially kids. Come on. They're kids. Jeez. All right. And now, of course, to our favorite segment that we always have to visit, it seems like, on a regular basis, it is time for us to talk the Correctional Department of Corrections to correct things that we've got incorrect. And this one comes from my friend, uh, Craig Chaplin. Uh, Craig is a member of my homebrew club and is an absolute whiz and expert about hop extracts and uses them to make his plenty of clones. And he actually wrote in with a note about our talking about hop extract before. Hey, I wanted to clarify a point from your latest podcast. CO2 hop extract will not dissolve as well in vodka. I've always used Everclear. It is 151 or greater proof and is much better at dissolving the tar-like substance. Cheers, Craig. And he's right. If you've ever played around with hop extract, boy, it does not want to dissolve. And yeah, yeah. the increased solvent capacity of 151 slash Everclear does do a lot better. Yep. 
And uh, based on our conversation with Brian Pierce a couple weeks ago, it sounds like we're going to have a bunch more hop extracts that could be hitting the market soon. So uh, good tip. Keep it, keep it in mind for when you get your hands on some to play with. All right. I think it's time for beer. I do too, man. We're going to head over to the Experimental Brewing Pub, talk about the beer life. So stick around. We'll be right back after this. Mecca Grade Estate Malt is a craft malt house owned and operated by the Klon family on their beautiful Central Oregon high desert farm. Their eighth generation Oregon farming family grows and malts all of their own specialty grain, creating malts that are rare, remarkable, and bursting with flavor. Malt is the foundation of your beer, so why settle? The best beers deserve Mecca Grade. For more information, please visit MeccaGrade.com. back and we are sitting here in the experimental brewing pub at the corner of everywhere and nowhere in your town usa and we are drinking beer what are you having today drew i'm having a special beer because it's a special day and you're a special guy yeah well that was just last night i was down at the society of barley engineers in san diego california and i was talking at their meeting i presented some of my notes thoughts and rants about uh saison which I'm sure you guys can imagine I can go on and on and on about. And, <laughs> and on and on and on. Yeah, well, and the Society of Barley Engineers have a sub-club, a side-club, a side-gig, however you want to call it, uh, called the Society du Lambic. And the members of that particular group get together every year, and they actually brew up a whole bunch of Lambic and refill barrels. They have Lambic barrels going on. That's an ongoing project. And every year they just make these incredible beers. And so last night as a speaker's gift, they gifted me with some bottles of their Frambois. So I'm drinking it and you're not. Man, I love Framboise. And I got to tell you, anything to do with raspberry is okay with me. I can even put aside a lot of my fruit beer prejudices if there's raspberries in there. Raspberries are good for you. (laughs) <laughs> and they taste so good too. <laughs> well, I'm uh, I'm drinking a lost beer uh, because my brewing has been so sporadic lately. I have been going through my beer fridge and pulling out all the bottles I've stuck in the back and saying, "Damn, I really need to start labeling these when I put them in there because I pull out bottles and I have no idea what it is." And one of the ones that I pulled out the other day, I popped the top, I poured it into the glass, I said, hmm, this is very dark. Could it be? Sure enough, it was a bottle of my bourbon vanilla imperial porter. And uh, checking my notes, I figure that that bottle was probably someplace in the seven-year-old range. And I was pretty impressed by how well it had held up. It had been in the fridge most of those seven years. Shows you how often I go through the back of my beer fridge. It was a a, a bit oxidized, had a, a bit of harshness to it. But as it sat in the glass, it really opened up and mellowed out and uh, ended up being a very, very enjoyable beer that I sipped over about 
the course of two hours as I was watching the World Series. I'm trying to think. The bourbon vanilla Imperial Porter isn't that big of a beer. It's in the the 9% area, 9.5. For some reason, I thought it was down around 7 no, it shows no, no, no. how much it's I pay a, attention. But so yeah, I mean nine <laughs> and a half in the fridge with some fortification. Yeah, that would last. Yeah, you know, and usually what I've experienced is a real fading of the vanilla and bourbon flavors, and that might have actually been a good thing in this beer because uh, the balance was really nice on it. There was just enough of those left to it, so that you could tell what it was. So. Anyway, I lucked out, and uh, the, the bad part is that I'm almost through all those old beers in the back of the beer fridge, so I'm hoping that the batch I have fermenting now gets done quick. Yeah, I'm going to say, you best, you best get on it, buddy. Yeah, well, you know what? I'm planning on brewing again as soon as I can. <laughs> Isn't that always the case, though, huh? Always. So I guess uh, I guess we're going to start today with some legal news, huh? So today we're going to start with a couple stories uh, from the legal files, uh, a couple trademark disputes. First one came up, uh, well, in early October, a brewer in, oddly enough, Brewer, Maine, where my mom is from, <laughs> uh, Mason, I think it's Mason Brewers. Uh, right. uh, Mason Brewery, they got a cease and desist letter from everybody's favorite craft beer brewery tin barrel over the use of the word apocalypse so apparently tin barrel has a ipa that they're well known for that they trademarked uh, years and years years ago called apocalypse ipa they actually uh, trademarked apocalypse ipa i think even before they were bought by abi oh yeah definitely uh, and mason brewing had their beer called hipster apocalypse that they just released not too long ago and of course Big to do, everybody getting all angry, and you know, ten barrels sending in from from Bend, Oregon, or maybe St. Louis, don't know where, but they sent a cease and desist to the little brewer in Brewer, Maine, who then basically said, "Hey, no, no, I'm not doing that. I, I, I'm not changing my name. You don't have the rights to just say nobody else can use the word apocalypse." And he pointed out that there were something like twenty to thirty beers and beer advocate that all used the term apocalypse attached to their beer. And so he he basically put his foot in the sand and said, "I am I am sticking to my ground here." And Mason Brewing said, "Nope, we're not changing." Uh, but it, news then came out about two weeks after this whole thing first started to, to happen, and I guess they've actually reached a reached an agreement with Tim Barrel that said, "Okay, you can use Hipster Apocalypse, but you can only use it for as long as you're only selling beer in the Northeast." <laughs> Okay, fine. I, I just find those kinds of arguments so silly, don't you? Well, yeah. I mean, look, I get it. They're, the trademark law is what it is, and the trademark law is a weird, hairy beast you know, that comes with you know requirements of active de- defense and everything else. Oh, but sure, 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 man, sure. I, kind of, I mean, there are lots of times when I really do miss the old days of uh, litigation, you know, or you know, settling settling things instead of using litigation, like what happened between uh, Russian River and Avery all those years ago, and they both said, eh, we can live together." Yeah, well, I mean, you know, I, I can't imagine that many people are going to be confused between hipster apocalypse and apocalypse IPA. Yeah. Well, you know, that is the that is the key. Would the average consumer be confused? And would the average consumer even care? Right. Yeah. Well, I I don't think that they would, uh, but who knows? So, uh, next piece of legal silliness has a European twist to it. Right. So, a Santa Fe uh, brewing company, 
that goes by the name of the Route 66 Junkyard Brewery. Basically got served a cease and desist from a European brand called, I think it's uh, Lodestar. That's the name? Yeah, Lodestar. Uh, Lodestar, who uh, apparently has an American trademark on the term Route 66, the Highway Shield, and beer. <laughs> yeah, used used in conjunction, I assume, not just like the word beer. Yeah, no, it, I mean, it, basically what they have is they have the rights to use Route 66 and the Highway Shield uh, in, the, in the beer world. That's where they filed okay. their trademark around. And right. so... Now, of course, I mean, the thing is, there are lots of beers out there named after various things, uh, Route 66 and whatnot. But Lodestar is uh, basically saying, hey, you know, look, we hold the trademark on this. And we They're coming after this little uh, brewery. Uh, they filed a lawsuit in uh, They actually filed a lawsuit in uh, Albuquerque. And uh, Henry Lackey, is, who has this brewery in the town of Grants in New Mexico, he is doing his best to be able to uh, to fight this because he doesn't think it's right that a brewery that is incorporated in Liechtenstein and headquartered on the island of Cyprus should have the, the trademark and the rights to prevent people from using something as uniquely and classically American as Route 66. Well, you know, and while I, I can agree with that to a certain degree, on the other hand... They got the trademark legally, and so uh, you know what can what can you say? All, all, all your good intentions are not going to change anything about the fact that whether or not they should have the trademark, they do. Well, but I mean, I think what he's going to fight is that he he would argue that the term is common enough that it should be invalidated, and I'm, I'm guessing that's what they're going for now. Lodestar, of course, in their lawsuit, is actually asking for damages and the profits from the brewery uh, for at least the past year. And, uh, you know, which is, of course, basically like, you know, we're going to put you out of business. So, and the beer itself is, they do actually brew a Lodestar Route 66 beer, and they call it an IPA lager blend, and they brew it in one of the big uh, commercial breweries, you know, one of the big uh, contract breweries up in Wisconsin. And it's available in, like, Spain and France and Slovenia and Switzerland and around the U.K. and parts of the U.S. It's a little strange. It's also a little, uh, I think, a little over the top to go and demand <laughs> all the profits. Yeah, I, I, I think so, too. I just, you know, come on, guys. Work it out. Work it out. You can do it. It's, it's easy. Uh, you know, there's got to be some sort of amicable settlement in the middle there. One would hope. Uh, and now from the law... We have to go to, well, silliness. Something silliness actually even sillier indeed. than the law. Oh, man, I and love I, this story. I would, say this is, I would say this is the most British story I think I've ever read. To sum this up, I'm just going to read you the headline from this story. Duck wearing bow tie walks into pub, drinks pint, fights dog, loses. <laughs> right there it, it tells you the whole thing and it's one of those things you go wait a minute i have to know more about this yeah and so you read it and it's happening in devon in the uk and basically man brings duck into the bar and it's his duck and apparently his duck and his dog got into a fight <laughs> and star of the duck was left with bill injuries and uh, it basically split the bottom beak right down the middle, and well, 
The good thing is Star recovered, went to the vet. Everything's fine with Star's bill, and Star is back in the pub. <laughs> so there you go. Uh, the, the lesson from that is if you own both a duck and a dog, don't take them to a bar and let your duck start drinking. Or at least don't take them together. I mean, you know, I've, I've heard of bar fights before, but uh, this, is, this has got to be the strangest one I've ever run across. <laughs> I wonder, were they arguing over the bill? <laughs> oh, oh, boy, that's really bad. I <laughs> <laughs> <sighs> oh, can't help it. Oh, it's just too good. <laughs> You kind of had to do that, didn't you? Kind of. All right, so next, from bar fights to fighting in a bar over money. So, dirty little secret in the in the world of the beer uh, business is tap handles and bottle space. It's expensive, and not expensive in the way that most people would normally think. Distributors have long been rumored to be playing the game of, well, pay-to-play. Kind of like the old days of radio when you got payola for playing a song so the new Beatles song could be the number one song in America. Craft beer distributors and really all beer distributors have been accused of walking into bars and either, well, being told, hey, you have to give us $1,000 if you want your beer on tap, or conversely, offering money to a bar to say, hey, we want those three tap handles and kick the other beer out. So this has been long rumored, you know, Chicago, Boston, any big city has really sort of had this reputation for doing it. Uh, my good friend, Dan Paquette of uh, the Pretty Things Project, he, uh, he called out this in Boston a few years back, ended up losing his brewery over time, but uh, he ended up calling them out and calling out one particular group, which was the Craft uh, Beer Guild, which is confusingly named distributor in the, in the Massachusetts area. They got finally hit by the Massachusetts uh, state with, I mean, I think it's the largest fine ever uh, against a beer distributor. Wow. It's, it's a big one for sure. Yeah. It was basically uh, $2.6 million. And um, they, the, the, they had been appealing it, trying to uh, say, hey, you know, look, this is, this is not something that we should have been charged with. But the uh, Superior Court in Massachusetts sided with the Massachusetts Alcohol Beverage Control Commission, the ABCC, and basically said, nope, you really do deserve this. And they had actually, it had been one of these things where originally the ABCC had said, okay, nope, you are going to be shut down for 90 days, 90 days of no sales, which for even a company as big as uh, the Craft Beer Guild, and they are, they are big, even for a company that big, 90-day suspension is terrifying. And so this activity had been going on for over six years. And they basically offered to pay $2.6 million instead of taking the shutdown, right? And uh, then once they had that agreement, they basically said, oh, never mind, we're going to court and actually determine that the uh, fine is unlawful and require it to be reduced so that we don't have to either pay it or shut down. And now the court has come back and said, no, you owe money. <laughs> you did it. You'll pay for it. Yeah. But I did think this is interesting because pay to play is a big problem. And, you know, here in California, for instance, you know, there are lots of rules about it, but it still goes on. You know, that's the reason why, you know, you, you see distributors doing things like here's a kegerator. Here's, you know, here's a nice new shiny tap faucet. And, you know, what would be great is if two of our beers were on this thing. 
You know, we'll, yeah. come, we'll come clean your tap lines in exchange for a certain number of taps. And if you're wondering why you should worry about this, what it really means to you personally, basically what it comes down to is an attempt to limit and force your choice into a certain area and range of beers. Um, you know, it, it's the same thing that we rail against with uh, a lot of the large beer companies, the mega breweries who have gotten into buying up the craft breweries. The whole objective there is to limit your choices in beer. And we all know that that's just not right. Yeah. And, and again, I mean, remember a system like this where it's pay to play favors the people who have the money to pay. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And they really don't care about you. Nope. So uh, we have we have one last little light bit of news here, and uh, it's an article by uh, Daniel Cerveza, aka Daniel J. Leonard, about the Beer Syndicate's Guide to the Philosophy of Ordering Beer. And basically, what they do is that they uh, look at a, a bunch of different uh, philosophical personality types and uh, talk about how they would order beer. For instance, the Fatalists. Says, it's logical or conceptual truth that we are powerless to do anything other than what we actually do. Accordingly, it really doesn't matter what I order. You'll just end up bringing me the exact beer I was fated to have anyway. It's kind of kind of like a Calvinist beer order, right? Yeah. Well, and then you also have like the Marxist philosophy for ordering beer, which goes under capitalism, commodities are produced so that they can be exchanged for profit instead of being produced based on what is needed by society. Wage workers are viewed as mere instruments valued only for their labor and exploited for their ability to generate profit for their capitalist employer, which ultimately alienates the worker from their humanity and individuality. The workforce will only regain its freedom and humanity when the means of production are commonly owned by everyone. Money no longer exists and no profit is made. In order to help with this transition, I'll just go ahead and pour myself a pint, free of charge. <laughs> yeah, you just go ahead and try that. Anyway... <laughs> If if you need something uh, something a little bit lighter uh, to kind of take you away from all the news these days, uh, it's a it's a fun read. We'll post a link and uh, spend a few minutes looking through it. I'm sure you'll get a chuckle out of it, and maybe you'll even recognize yourself in there somewhere. Well, how about we uh, how about we go read something? <laughs> sure. Speaking of reading, we're going to uh, finish up these beers and head on over to the library where we're going to look at an article put out by Frank Boone on the art of spontaneous fermentation, which has some really killer info on the history of lambics and tips for how to get the most out of one when you brew it. So stick around. We're going to be right back with that. When I'm done brewing, I want to be done brewing, not waiting around for my wort to cool. With the Hydra, the Corny Pillar, and the other great chillers from Jaded, I can be done when I'm done. No more waiting 20 minutes for the wort to cool enough to add whirlpool hops. No more messing with cleaning and sanitizing counterflow or plate chillers. With the super fast immersion chillers from Jaded, you can chill your wort in minutes without all the hassle. Jaded chillers aren't just works of art, they're the fastest, most effective chillers you can buy. Check them out at jadedbrewing.com.
we've made our way over to the library now. We're sitting here in the stacks of books. Uh, are you smoking a pipe today? No, no pipe today. I'm okay. still recovering from all the forest fires. Oh, yeah, right. Well, okay, I've got mine here, so I'll just smoke for both of us. If, uh, if you've been in the world of Belgian beer for a while, you've probably heard the name Frank Boone uh, of the Boone Brewery. Frank is noted as being an expert on, uh, I, I hate to say sour beers because that's such a wide category, but let's say spontaneously fermented beers and uh, makes some amazing stuff and has a wealth of knowledge on it that he's uh, now shared with all of us. Yeah, and so at this year's Beer Bloggers and Writers Conference, which happened back actually in August in, I want to say this year was in Milwaukee. Uh, he gave a presentation on the art of spontaneous fermentation by Frank Bone. And he, uh, yeah, I mean, he walked through. I mean, this is the slide deck is available online. It is amazing. It is just a wealth of history and facts and like how many Lambic brewers were uh, open in 1850 around Brussels, 80, and how many uh, blenders were active around 230 which is a long cry from where they are today. But I mean, just walking through and like finding out like, okay, when, when was this stuff first imported into the U S 1830, et cetera. And then going into, it actually steps through like the whole, the whole process of how things are, are brewed uh, today and, and how they were brewed in the past and walks, walks through a lot of facts that will look very familiar to us talking about the history of Britannomyces uh, talking about like, you know, where he thinks, all the various organisms come from and what's necessary and how you actually make it. And then I don't know about you, Denny, but I think one of my favorites is that there's a whole section at the end about the, the qualities and flaws of Udukus. Yeah, man. I mean, I'm, I'm looking through this just as we talk here and it is fascinating. There are some great photos, some amazing historical documents, um, this is, I mean, whether whether you're into lambics or not, this is a really fascinating read. Yeah, and no, I think if I remember correctly, Frank started off as a blender and not as a brewer, and I think over time has gotten uh, gotten a brewery together, or maybe I have that backwards. I can't remember which, but he talks about like you know, hey, what are some of the things that you should look for in a goose? Because goose is his his real passion mm-hmm. and you know like this one will go to the heart of the big haze debate you know the characteristics of a good bottle of goose clarity cloudiness is to be avoided as goose is to be canted straight into the glasses take that haze people you know and just i mean like i said it, it, it's a really fascinating read great pictures great information uh it'll be uh, half an hour of your time well spent and if you can get away with it in only half an hour you're going to be doing better than me yeah and also i would highly recommend that while you read this article that you uh, well you enjoy yourself a nice bone creek at the same time i mean to me of the goozes and the other lambics that he has he has uh, two that are called uh, Marriage Parfait, you know, the perfect marriage. Uh, one's just a goose, and the other one's a creek. And those are two of my favorite uh, favorite uh, Lambic-style beers. Yep, yep, right. You know what, though? I think that he left something out of this. Yeah. I, I don't see where he talks about using good belly. <laughs> or, or souring in the kettle? What? <laughs> yeah. When do you add the lactic acid? Yeah. No, knock it off. <laughs> 
yeah, this is this is traditional. This is the real thing. Uh, check it out. I, I just can't say enough good things about it. And it's really great. Yeah, it, and I mean, this is one of those things where you read through it and you're kind of going, "Oh, okay." And it, it's really helping solidify a lot of a lot of knowledge. And like I said, to me, the history part is also really cool, just to see like, "Oh, this has been going on for a good long while." And you know, that brings to mind. Uh, don't forget that next August 10th and 11th, the Beer Bloggers and Writers Conference will actually be up in Loudoun County, Virginia. So you can Ooh, go. Cool. Really, man? Hmm, maybe we need to do that. Maybe. Okay, we are going to get out of here and head over to the brewery. It is time for more hop talk. It is hop season, so we're talking hops once again. Stick around. We're going to be right back. Are you a fan of chocolate, but not of the mess that comes from using cacao nibs? Chalaka is your answer. A favorite of Tim Matthews at Oscar Blues, it contains only cacao and water. Chalaka is aseptically packaged, so you don't have to worry about any bugs coming along uninvited. Using only sustainably sourced cacao, every bottle of Chalaka you buy helps regrow the rainforests of Ecuador and Peru. Ask for Chalaka wherever Brewcraft USA products are sold. are sitting here in the brewery now surrounded by shining stainless steel burners going uh i think drew has his zymatic cranking out some kombucha right yeah exactly because you know me and kombucha i live in california (laughs) so the first thing we want to talk about is something that is a uh, new program that's a partnership between the brewers association and uh, the u.s department of agriculture and it is a public hop breeding program that's going to be taking place in oregon and washington where they have partnered to try and uh, produce more domestic public domain hops so uh, they'll be available to everybody and they're looking for qualities that will reduce downy and powdery mildew and provide a bigger yield and uh, more aromatic and expressive hops and it's that's pretty darn cool and and thank you brewers association yeah so if you don't know the united states department of agriculture uh, maintains well, breeding programs and uh, research programs all around the country into all sorts of different agricultural products. So, the, and so this particular case, the hop breeding is part part of this, and it falls under the agricultural resources services. They have you know breeding stations uh, and programs in in Washington and Oregon, and in times past, this these efforts would have been funded by say. Yeah, the big breweries. Yeah, so your Millers, your Anheuser Buschers, your Coors, but with consolidation happening and a lot of other impacts happening to bottom lines, monies dedicated to public uh, breeding programs from the big brewers have started to 
fall off. And so now the Brewers Association, they've been talking about this for a couple of years. Brewers Association is stepping in to actually help fund some of that breeding research. Now, what this means is practically some of our favorite new varieties of hops, you know, like some of the ones that we get from YCH hops, you know, like say your your Citras, your Simcoe, you know, all these kind of new hop uh, hops that everybody's super Amarillo. excited about. Yeah, Emerald. They're all actually privately owned breeds which means that you know they're kind of controlled as to who can grow them so that's part of the reason why that market can get kind of restricted and the idea here is let's make another cascade let's make another centennial let's make another willamette you know all of those were public ops that were bred up through various uh department of agriculture programs right and at oregon state university which is you know kind of like out, you know, in, in the public domain. And, you know, and I have no problem with hop farmers who want to come up with proprietary varieties. Um, that's great. They certainly have a right to. The, it's a hard job growing and harvesting hops. So they deserve it if they can do it. But on the other hand, let's not forget about all the great public domain hops that have been out there and let's not neglect developing more of them. So, I just think that this is this is nothing but a good thing to get more variety in hops and to get hops that are going to grow better and provide a bigger yield and make them available to everybody. I, I think that's great, and I'm really anxious to see what comes out of it. Yeah, I mean, I think the industry works best when there's both private and public funding. Yeah, right, exactly. You know, there's there's definitely room for both of them. And the other thing, since we're talking hops and the Pacific Northwest, is an article in Seattle Magazine about how the hops capital of the world is in eastern Washington, with 75% of the nation's hops grown in Yakima. This year's harvest is one of the most anticipated by brewers around the world. And uh, I know I'm always talking about going to hop and brew school, but boy, there is nothing that will give you a feeling for where all these hops come from than being up in the Yakima area around harvest time. Uh, And I thought it was interesting because they also talked about the fact that, hey, this means Yakima has officially edged out Germany for amount of hops grown. Yeah, right. And, you know, I can can easily believe that. I think that in general, the farms up in that area are bigger than the German farms. Uh, You know, again, in general. But, uh, you know, there's just... A wonderful, wonderful culture of hop growing there. It's very collaborative. I mean, you know, there's some competition, of course, but basically the hop growers know each other. They help each other out. Uh, you know, it's, it's just a wonderful thing. It's huge. And uh, I would really, really encourage any of you who are able to go to YCH Hop and Brew School to take advantage of that when it comes up next September. Yeah, absolutely. But still, read through this article. You'll you'll hear from some names that we've talked to before in the past, uh, some breweries that we've talked to before, like Bailbreaker. Uh, and just really get a chance to see what the whole process looks like and you know, really understand, like, yeah, you know, how the business has changed and why it's actually drawing back in the previous generation that had that had left. Yeah, right. It's a very, very family-oriented business. So check out the article. Great pictures, cool info. If you're a hophead like me, you're going to love it. Now it is time to lounge. 
To lounge indeed. Uh, Drew just got back from a trip to San Diego and he managed to get uh, an interview or two while he was down there. So we're going to head over to the lounge and check out what he did. Stick around. We're going to be right back. Y Yeast has been producing premium liquid yeast for over 30 years and continues to provide homebrewers with the same quality, purity, and reliability as the professionals. Denny Kahn and Drew Beecham collaborated with Y-East to bring you this quarter's private collection. As the weather starts to cool, some of the world's greatest beer festivals are getting ready to celebrate. Lagers can be the ideal beer for any season, but there's no better time than autumn to brew some of the classics. With their lower fermentation temperatures and accentuated maltiness, our 2002 PC Gambrinus Lager, 2487 PC Hellebach, and 2575 PC Kolsch II will lend ideal variety and complexity through the months to come. Get them October through December 2017. just about time it's just about time don't you think it's about time we talked about beer okay this is the part where everybody sings beer 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 we are now lounging in the lounge, and Drew's going to tell us about his trip to San Diego yesterday. Uh, and Drew's going to tell. Uh, uh, let me get a place to edit in there. And Drew's going to tell us about the trip to San Diego he just returned from. Yeah. So as I mentioned in the pub, I was drinking the Society de Lambics uh, Framboise, and I spoke at the Society of Barley Engineers meeting uh, the the other week. And of course, while I'm doing that, I have to stack more than just one thing into the mix. So I had recorder in hand, and I stopped at Wild Barrel Brewing Company. Now, Wild Barrel is a brand new brewing company, but from a couple of big old names in the beer industry: Bill Sobieski, who used to brew for Stone, and Dr. Bill Sislak, who well, I don't know how you describe Doc, but Doc is sort of insane. He has been a beer nerd for forever. <laughs> sort he, of insane. Well, no, uh, we talk about this in the interview, but he had his birthday party where they were pouring new rare beers every 10 minutes. And if you couldn't wait the 10 minutes he jokes for the other nine minutes there were 20 of the rarest beers on keg in his backyard he, he estimated he went through over ten thousand dollars worth of beer for this one birthday party you're kidding me no it was insane it was uh, like he had a menu with times scheduled on it you know this uh, this beer will be open at this hour you know 10 minutes later this beer will be open 10 minutes later this beer it was nuts okay and, okay that's a, that's officially insane. Yeah, and then so Doc, after leaving the medical field, he was known as this beer guy, and he got invited by Stone to come help them when they were opening up the brewery in Escondido to become their director of I don't know all things crazy beer. So <laughs> he helped arrange the festivals. He had all the contacts. He put together tasting menus, all this sort of crazy stuff, just to really push the the, the message of good beer is good for you and tastes great. And after a couple of, doing that for I think about eight years, 
he, uh, the, you know, Stone had a, a layoff last year, and he and Bill had already been planning the brewery. So it was the perfect time, and they have now been open. When I was there yesterday, they had been opened for 30 days. And no surprise, with those two guys behind it, they were already making some really amazing beer. Wow, that's great, so, man. So sit back, relax, hopefully have a beer of your own, and let's listen to how these two Bills went to make a brewery. Well, hello, ladies and gentlemen. Once again, it's time that we be in the lounge and we talk to people, you know, beery people, because we like to learn about beer. So, of course, I'm Drew, and I am here in San Diego, California, the lovely, not-so-gray, not-so-cold San Diego today, unlike L.A. yesterday, and I am at Wild Barrel Brewing Company. And guys, why don't you introduce yourselves? I'm Bill Sobieski. I'm the Director of Brewing Operations and the Brewer. And I'm Bill Sysak, known as Dr. Bill in the craft beer community. I am the CEO and one of the four co-founders along with Bill here. And just because Bill S. and Bill S. would be way too confusing, it's Bill and Doc. Fair enough. There you go. (laughs) All right. So now, just real quick, I mean, I've known both of you guys for a good long while, you know, either from beer tastings or homebrew or, you know, various uh, festivals because... As much as we like to say that Southern California is a big place, the homebrew community and the beer community is a relatively tiny community in terms of those of us who are nuts. It's been decades, for sure. Yeah, I, you <laughs> you run into everybody at least at a beer festival or at a judging competition or or at a brewery. Well, I mean, Bill, I think I mean, I mean, you and I have spent more time than I care to admit at like a Southern California Homebrews Festival. Correct. You yes. Know, being silly there and... All right, Doc, I think the first time I ran into you was with your magical suitcase of beer in the back room of the Toronado uh, during one of the barley wine festivals. That sounds about right. <laughs> Legendary, weren't they? Oh, jeez. <laughs> yeah, so, well, let's actually, uh, before we get into that part, let's just, we got to do the, the big thing. So, all right, Bill, how'd you get into beer? Uh, let's see, I started brewing, I think, in the mid-80s. Homebrew, my first home brewing, and I think what set me off was uh, well, my my dad brewed when I was a kid. You know, he made beer and he made wine, so I remember we had made wine a few times. And then uh, I think one day I heard on the news that they raised the price of beer and nickel, a beer and taxes, and I just that was it. I'm like, I'm not paying that tax. I am going to brew my own beer, and <laughs> and I've spent way more over the years than I ever would have if I would have just paid the extra nickel of beer. Whoever said that homebrewers were cheap or wise? <laughs> Neither. <laughs> and Doc? So uh, I had I got my first craft beer experience in 1977 when my dad caught me drinking bad beer in the backyard. He had been in World War II and was able to try English ales and German lagers and had just recently stumbled across a very early liquor store chain called the Liquor Barn in Orange County and had come across some uh, imported beers. So we started doing tastings every Friday and Saturday with a bunch of our friends and relatives. And by the time I was 18, because I was 15 and 77, we had a room in my parents' house that had over 3,000 different bottles of beer. 
during that time I got to try you know uh, Fritz's first releases uh, we had a friend that bought wine in Sonoma so Jack McAuliffe's bottles came down or and then we also got the opportunity to try a bunch of Belgian beers because we had a friend in NATO so tried my first Rodenbach and first Chimay in 78 fell into Michael Jackson's book not the guy with one glove but the famous beer and whiskey writer and from there it was downhill ever since 40 years you know, I have to admit, so, okay, you said, what, like, 1980? 77. Well, 77 was when you guys started, and yeah. by 1980, you had uh, 3,000 bottles in your, your parents' house. Yeah, there was a room my dad was more proud of than I was, actually, of empty bottles. I, I have to admit, I'm kind of amazed that in 1980 that you could actually amass 3,000 bottles of different beer. It, was, it wasn't as hard as you'd think, because, like I said, the liquor barn had just opened. They were kind of like an early BevMo, so there was a whole aisle of imports. It was primarily imports, but at the time we also didn't know anything about craft beer or even the definition of a microbrewery. So we were getting things like, you know, all the different types of PBR and different things like that. So we were getting these uh, Paps Dark and things like that. We were like, oh, cool, this is another new beer. So a lot of them were regional breweries that were around, but then there were just tons of uh, German uh, lagers and Hefeweizens coming out and uh, Dutch beers and all kinds of things like that. So it was kind of fun. All right, so next question. Bill, what's your favorite curse word? (laughs) I have no idea. You have no idea what your favorite curse word is? <laughs> I, I don't have a favorite. I like them all. <laughs> well, okay. Equal opportunity. I like person. them all equally and use them all equally. <laughs> all right, and Doc, what's your favorite curse word? Does Sobieski count? <laughs> it might in some circles. It does it's sometimes, but uh, probably the good old F word. Fuck, I'm just, you know, old school, like it, Hank. It has brevity and yet it has it has depth. to it. Yeah, depth and weight. <laughs> well, and uh, by far and away, the F word is everybody's favorite uh, swear word, at least amongst brewers. So, all right, and we, we talked, uh, Bill. We, we talked actually when you both when you guys both discovered uh, good beer. So now, since since you're both, you know, sort of responsible for the overall beer picture here at Wild Barrel, I'm going to ask you guys. My favorite question, which is omitting the word balance, describe your beer philosophy. I'll go first, Bill, and then you can break down the beers a little bit. Uh, Yes, balance is a good word to be omitted by us, I believe. So the way Bill and I work is... I kind of organize and have the vision of the different beer styles and then Bill's the artist of course so he kind of runs with it. Uh, We collaborate to a certain extent about hops and we talk about what he's going to brew and if there's anything that can be uh, and then I give him my input as far as different fruit flavors or different hops and things like that but Bill knows the kind of styles we're looking for and I would say they're definitely not balanced beers as a whole and he's very good at it. He's been doing home brewing, like he said, for, for many decades. And so I have complete faith in his uh, ability to create the beers that him and I dream up on the chalkboard. Well, I was going to say, looking, looking back at the board that, that you guys have right now, and, and heck, even the two beers I have in front of me right now, I have one, I have a Bologna Vice with guava, and then I have a double IPA. So, yeah, they're, they're kind of running to two different ends of the spectrum. Yeah, so, All right, Bill. 
Yeah, I mean, I don't think we, the balance, the word balance would work for us. Um, definitely, like for the IPAs, we like hop forward, but we don't want. Uh, I don't. I don't want things too bitter. And I'm not. I'm not trying to say balance, but I. I, um, I guess it depends on the style of beer. You know, sometimes, uh, like the West Coast styles, I'm. I really like them to be dry. I don't like malty beers. I like drier, more cleaner, more fermented out, finished beers with, with hops that are uh, not too bitter, but definitely floral hops in your face um i like the sour beers um these are these berliner styles or the kettle sours are very clean tart sour beers with and definitely plenty of fruit not afraid to use fruit or not afraid to use hops we're not afraid to use other things like coffee or chocolates in in what we're going to be doing with some of our imperial stouts well, I was going to say, right now, you, I mean, you have four San Diego vices on tap. Right. And all four of them have a different flavor to them. you get got uh, Montemacillo cherries, strawberry, guava, and black currant. Correct. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, you're, you're, not, you're definitely not, like, going in for, you know, just the, the straight up, here you go. And I know you we Yeah, we haven't done the typical uh, raspberry or blueberry or whatever you see in a... And a weed or sour beer at your typical pub. Well, and you have, uh, I have the guava here in front of me. And I have to say, I'm usually not a guava fan, like most of the time, because I was raised in Florida. I wasn't raised anywhere near guava as a childhood right. flavor. So guava to me is usually kind of, I want to say there's a part of my brain that usually wants to interpret ripe guava as being sort of semi rotten. Sure, overripe. Uh, that's that's very classic and one of the things with these that we wanted to achieve and Bill's done an amazing job is when I was dreaming up originally and then got with Bill and together we had this wonderful idea to have these bigger Berliner Weiss style beers San Diego Weiss at 5.6 was that the fruit would affect you differently with each beer so the guava is almost this big juicy kern juice right yep kern fruit juice and yet the montmorency cherries is more of that classic kettle sour where you get that acidity on the back mid back of the palate the um strawberry which we normally don't neither of us i think are huge fans of strawberry and barrel aged beers because mm-hmm. of what the seeds do we knew that he'd be able to produce this very aromatic and just beautifully uh strawberry attack on your sensations of your of your palate and then finally the black currant we wanted to get this kind of cabernet merlot sapage blackberry fruits red sweet red cherry aromas that you'd remind you of a great wine and then this tannic finish so they all kind of hit you differently and that's kind of our goal and bill like i said has done an amazing job because it's not just big fruit after big fruit after big fruit it's different aromas different mouthfeels different uh fruity esters that come across well i was gonna say so with the four that i've had you know and yeah and you're totally right they all hit differently all right and the guava hit me with that that sense of like oh hey you know this is actually really kind of nice guava and uh, bill you're kind enough to actually bring me out your version two of the guava the first one had a little more candiness to it this one is much more dry and, and dries more of the tartness which i naturally being a beer guy right. like uh the cherry i mean 
it was classical cherry, but you also got the little bit of the lob thing with the cherry pits in there. Right. And then, I mean, me, I was impressed, actually. I remember I, I had to laugh. The bartender laid down the, the four beers in front of me, and he's like, okay, that's the strawberry, and that's the Montemassier cherry. And I'm like going, wait, why is the strawberry so much darker, and the Montemassier cherry looks yeah. pink? Right. Yeah. I was like, this is messing with my brain, man. Um, and, and, and I mean, look, let's face it, I think more people need to play around with uh, the black currants. I mean, now that we can actually get currants here in the right. country. It's, right. It, it's delicious. People are, people love it. You know, once they've tried it, I think most people in America don't even know what black currant is. I, the only reason I knew well, what it was. it was banned for years because people were worried about what it would do to pine trees. Yeah. I... I the only time I ever had it was in like uh, a beer that came from Belgium and it was like I think Lindemann's Cassis yeah. or something. That was the only time I'd ever had it. And Lindemann's was way over sweet. They oh, that was syrup. Yeah, fructose in there, and it just it really gave Cassis a bad name as far as ice concerned in the beer circles. Well, but and then if you I mean if you ever been over to Burton, you know, and they have Rubina everywhere, and right. it's like you know, hey, let's make some beer. Let's make some beer with a Rubina and whatnot. You start to taste that, and you go, "Oh, wow, that's a really interesting flavor." I mean, like it, like you were saying, you get those those wine like characteristics. Right. So, yeah, I'm really glad to see that we can get some more of that now, and we can actually play around with some of that. Right. So, all right, now we got Doc. You were you were the beer collector, the man with uh, with the knowledge of a thousand beers plus probably a thousand beers at a party. I, I remember, I think your last birthday party, you broke out so many so many beers. It was stupid. Yeah, it was. Uh I think I lost like ten thousand dollars at that birthday party and sharing with my friends. Who cares? But it was 148 cases of the rarest beers in the world. Uh, luckily, some of my brewer friends gave us, including Bill, he gave us a keg of his Mission Impeccable, and uh, Tommy gave us Cuvée de Tommy, and Vinny gave us Temptation. So oh, Peter, the joke Peter was, I'd pour two beers every Speedway. ten minutes. Yeah, Speedway two beers every 10 minutes for 12 hours and in case you got thirsty in the nine minutes in between pours there were 20 of the rarest kegs in the world sitting over there just wasting away so yeah yeah, yeah that, I, I just remember that last one that looked like that was epicurean madness Di- dionysian you know delights those are all great descriptors of stuff i do <laughs> <laughs> so all right but let, let's talk so i mean obviously we have, you know, Bill, you, you had the, the homebrewing background. Mm-hmm. Doc, you had the beer collecting background. So now, how, uh, what's the journey to get from that to your own place here where now you're getting to play around and produce these flavors? Well, you know, I think we first met at the Southern California Homebrew Fest. Yeah, we I came was... up and tried some of my beers when I was making beers with the Barley Eng- Society of Barley Engineers. Yep. That's true. I was, because I had... Uh, been to the first one on the Salerzo winery and I was always a friend of Vinny yep. and so I, I made it to most of them and I, I come and try both your guys amazing beers all the time used to do those uh, magnums of Jeroboam bottles mm-hmm. you guys used to or- open but um, I was always around beer I was always considered very knowledgeable I traveled to Belgium 35 times I was just kind of the grandfather of beer geeks let's call it one of those guys that started off early had this big collection of thousands of bottles of beer and I always loved to share them whether that was going to events or traveling to new breweries or whatnot and I continued on in the medical field for a long time uh, working in emergency rooms and then 
when I retired in 2008, Greg and Steve from Stone were good friends of mine, and people were asking me, you're going to start a brewery now? What are you going to do? And I was like, I don't know. And I went and talked to Greg and Steve, and they said, well, we want you to come work for us, of course. And so I came on as their craft beer ambassador for seven and a half years, uh, kind of being their beer expert educator, overseeing their beverage program. And during that time, Bill was also working there. Um, and so we renewed our, our relationship, and then it was just the right opportunity uh, when uh, Stone did the release of a lot of their employees at the beginning of uh, end of last year that uh, I had already been working on this with Bill for about a year, so it wasn't a big issue for me personally leaving. Yeah, it was just now is the time to pull the trigger because you're not a Stone anymore. Right. Well, it was the, it was the sign the sign from above. Exactly. Right exactly. So uh, we had already, like I said, been working on it for about a year and so it just fell into it that uh, we had the business plan we knew the vision I'd been teaching at SDSU for a few years before that consulting and consulting with breweries so pretty much I knew Bill could group brew any of the beers that we wanted to brew and I had the vision of talking to so many bars and breweries and telling them what I thought they should be doing right that I thought we had the good outline for the way um, we should do everything. And so we're following one of those paths where we feel that we know what we're doing and with Bill's beers, we're gonna, we're gonna make it. Bill, you got anything to add to that? Well, I think a lot of it is, uh, you know, part of it is when he worked at Stone and, and worked with all these bars, I think he started to get a good picture of what beers were moving. And, I'm, and even though I love barley wines and old stock ales, and, and I'd love to make some of those beers. You know, we fondly refer to those as shelf turds because mm -hmm. they just don't sell in this market very well. And so I think he was exposed to the styles that are moving. And sure, IPAs, right? IPAs mm -hmm. in this town, you have to make an IPA or you're just not going to be selling a lot of beer. I was going to say... It by San Diego County rules, are you actually allowed to open a brewery without at least two IPAs on tap? <laughs> yes, but you're not guaranteed to stay in business <laughs> well, if you don't. Well, so, and, and by the way, I, I share your your all's disappointment that, that barley wine. Oh, has we love we love we love so. to make some of these beers, you know. But it's just like, I mean, there, you know, like he keeps telling me, we're, we'll get a pilot system and then you can make a Zwickel beer, and I'm like, you know, I, you know, I. There's room for other styles, but we have to focus now on what's going to move the quickest in this market because we're new. Yeah, we're new. We can't sit on a bunch of beer. We have to make it, and we have to move it so we can pay the bills. Yeah. Well, I mean, you guys have a big, glorious space that, that we're sitting in right now. Yeah, you got I – mean, those are bills that have to be paid. You so. have to move some beer. Yeah. I, I always admire the people out there who are, you know, they have their vision, they're dead set on it, they, they know exactly what it is they want to deliver, no matter what the realities of the market are. I always kind of think of them as being very noble, yet flawed. Yeah, exactly. Well, I think that's why the reasons why we make a good team, because I can make the beers, but he knows the styles that he sees the, you know, the trends of what's moving. And so what do you think is moving outside of the IPA world? Well, we already know that IPA in the IRI marketplace is 27% of all, all the variations between an AMPM and a Costco for all packaged. We know that all 
new craft beer growth, 75% of it is IPA or IPA derivatives. Mm -hmm. We know that sours are growing at a much more rapid rate, but their their by volume is so minuscule, mm -hmm. uh, almost a 50th of a percent compared to IPA growth, that that's not going to be the next trend. The next trend is really going to be gateway beers, which are you know your Hefeweizen, Wits, Pilsner, Kolsch, Blonde, because those are the beers that will allow another 10% of market share by volume to come on. And actually, love them or hate them, and I know you guys are both old-time brewers, so not necessarily totally embracing, or maybe you do, cloudy IPAs. Just the so fact that cloudy IPAs are big now and they're softer and fruitier, they're allowing more people to come in and try an IPA and be a, try more aggressive flavors right off the bat. I used to jo joke with Greg Cook when I was at Stone, he'd all, we'd go to these events across the country and he'd be like, now Dr. Bill, I've told you our gateway beer is Stone Ruination. And I'm like, no, it's not, Greg. It's Kelly Belgique IPA because it softens the hot bitterness of the IPA and allows pear and pepper notes to come across. But that was his stubbornness. And for us, it's our white rascal, our Belgian wit. That's the beer we need. But a lot of new breweries, they tend to throw on five or six of these things, and they're undercutting their own sales by taking up a lot of not only uh, cooperage and serving tank space, but also their beer list by having multiple beers. And even though they all sell well, if you go down to one or two gateway beers, they're going to sell five or six times better because those are the choices the staff takes you to. It's, it allows you to focus. Exactly. Well, and I've argued in the past that the whole New England IPA, hazy IPA, whatever you want to call it, IPA thing, to me, in a lot of, if you're doing it the way that you see it out of actually New England, it's a rebirth of the pale ale. It's a refocus of the pale ale. They just happened to put the IPA moniker on it and made it hazy. Because, I mean, you look at the IBU levels, you look at the, the gravity levels, the ABV levels, it's, it's APA all the way out the door, except for now you've got more of that modern hop focus, so you're putting as much hop oil in front of people. Yeah, dry hopped it like, to, the, to the gills. Yeah. And then I, I had to laugh because I think this summer up in L.A., you know, and of course L.A. is behind the times with San Diego County. How, how many breweries are in San Diego County right now? 157, I believe. Yeah. L.A. just crossed 70. So, hey. Right. But, but given that six years ago we were at like five, right. I'll take it. But this last summer, what I saw in our 70 breweries was suddenly like an influx of hellas. Hmm. Like a lot, of, a lot of LA breweries, particularly given that a lot of our LA breweries are in very largely Hispanic markets, right? Right. Because it's LA. A lot of those guys were focusing on like, hey, our flagship for the summer is a Hellas. You know, they skipped over like the half. They they skipped over Wits or anything else. It was like, here, here's your Hellas. And I was amazed because so many of those breweries, even the younger ones, were actually doing a really good job of delivering on the idea of a Hellas, which I would think. I would think that would take more time, more more skill, more uh, more patience to develop. But a lot of these guys, I guess, are coming into the into the chain with either experienced brewers or people who have been paying attention or are willing to take some of that little bit of time just to turn around and nail it out the door with the Hellas. So right, it's really nice to see. Well, we know that Hellas and Pilsners are are much tougher to make because you can't hide behind anything, right? Mm -hmm. But there's also, and I, I know, I'm pretty sure Bill likes Hellas and Pills. I know I do, but we opted for the wit because we wanted something that wouldn't 
necessarily be boring after the second or third glass. Not that a Hellister Pills is. I could sit and crush a six-pack any day because it's just so good if it's a well-made beer. But the wit, I always think of as something approachable for the BMC drinkers, the Bud mm -hmm. Miller Curse drinkers, and but yet complex me. enough to allow... Yes, exactly. And complex enough to allow for somebody who's been drinking beer for 40 years to still enjoy a glass or two without being bored because of the deep complexity of the Belgian yeast strain and the you know coriander and the Curacao orange peel and the wheat and everything. All right, and then, so, I mean, obviously, I, th I think we answered some of this, but like, you know, is there a particular beer that you guys don't necessarily have on tap that you find yourself longing to write something that is something that you'd be happy to in doc's words sit down and crush a six-pack of i think we both have some but what what's yours that you'd love to do at some point once we get that uh, pilot hop, system hoppy pills nice hoppy pills i have two i really check, want to do like a, a bar check, check, a check pill, pills yeah. that'd be awesome uh but in three barrel batches not 15 barrel batches right yeah just, um, yeah, just enough for the taps here we're not trying to we're not trying to sell kegs of it because we couldn't compete i really want to do a classic english barley wine would be amazing that would be but good too. i i have a caveat there's once we get the barrel program going and once the barrel program is off site we want to play with Brett, and what I really want to do is take two of my favorite beers in the world, Orval and Dupont Avec Le Bon Vu, and make a 10% breaded Saison. I just think that would be one of the funnest beers to ever have. So, Slim, when you're ready to do that, give me a call because you just you just smoke magic and loving words into my ears. <laughs> All right, those are two of my favorite beers. I yep. mean. Like, literally, you know, you always get the question, hey, what's your favorite beer? And, of course, the answer is always, like, the one that's in front of me. And then the next answer is, depends upon the situation. But I have to kind of admit, if you force me into that, the answer for me is going to be a Vecula Bamboo. Yeah. Because, it's a great beer. boy, that's a fantastic beer. Is that, was that your Desert Island beer? Yeah, if, if I can only have one beer... Yeah, it would be a, a Vecla Bamboo because it, I mean it hits it hits so many of those markers of things that you want. It's it's dry. It is I mean it is imminently drinkable. It has enough strength behind it to make you feel happy. It has enough hops behind it to to make you feel like I'm getting something hoppy. It's got yeah. enough phenolic and ester complexity to it to make you like go, my nose it feels alive. So yeah, what's yours, Bill? What's your Desert Island beer? Cuvée Van de Kaiser, the head anchor. Oh. Oh, that's a classic. That's from Mechelen. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, with or without the cookies. Yeah. Just the beer. The blue <laughs> label. See, and I'm Dr. Bill, so I have a, a Desert Island six-pack. <laughs> of course you I'm not gonna, Oh, yeah. I'm not oh, going to yeah. take up time with that right Alexand now. Alexander. <laughs> Alexander. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, well, I miss, I, I miss the original Alexander. Like, no, me too. I would like to make one of those styles. That would be a, a good goal to try to try to make that. Yeah, uh, youngins who are listening to the podcast, we're sorry. You will never have proper Rundbach Alexander. It was a damn good beer. Well, unless you come over to my house. Well, yes. But <laughs> very few of us get that invitation. <laughs> All right. So, so we, I mean, I, I have to laugh at the fact that, I mean, okay, so you guys are both, you know, stone guys, you know, commercially. Uh, and now we were what? 2.2 miles down the road from yep. Stone? We're very close. We are 3.1 miles. 3.1. And you're even closer to the original Stone facility. Lost Abbey, 0 0.3 miles. Yes. Yeah, it's bananas. It's it's the family all stays in the same area. Exactly. Yes. 
So right now on tap, you guys have basically you have like one or two ancillary things, then you got a couple IPAs, and then you got this four pack of vices. I think we got like four IPAs on right now, don't we? Yeah, yeah. Three, four, four IPAs, four vices, our gateway beer, the, the, the White Rabbit, and yeah, then our latte. pedigree poodle, which is <laughs> hipster latte, but the full name is Sorry, we're out of avocado toast. Try our hipster latte, man bun approved. That's the pedigree poodle term. Now I want avocado toast. Thank you. <laughs> well, so, I mean, you guys are just getting established. You know, the, the brewery's been open for how long now? 30 days. <laughs> that's right, we're bringing you fresh content. Uh, <laughs> so 30 days, so, and that's the reason why we're on batch two of the guava. Where where else do you guys see this going? Like how how where do you want to push into? Because I mean, obviously you got the the barrel in your name, right? And right now we're still very much in like that fresh sour range. So where where are we going? Well, we are going to have a very extensive barrel program. We've added uh, Preston Wiesner, who was the uh, master blender at Cascade for many years and grew their uh, range of sours from about a half dozen to about two dozen, not to mention his weekly exploits with live barrels. So our goal is to have, you know, 1,000, 1,500, sorry Preston, he, he panics when I say that, 1,500 <laughs> barrels in the next couple of years, allow Bill to continue to run rampant with all kinds of fresh seasonal fruit with the kettle sours, um, do his magic with the IPAs, and eventually, like we said, get that pilot system so he can just go crazy and you know, do a Ralk beer, do a Saison, do whatever, all beer styles that we love. Plus, we plan on, you know, doing self-distribution slightly, but really we're all about selling in-house. So we're going to open five or six little tasting rooms, and we're going to come up and visit you, Drew, up in L.A., and we're going to have one up there. So, I mean, because let's face it, that's the wild, wild west, right? Hey, yeah, we're at 70 breweries. we got how many millions of people? we got room to grow. Yeah. Well, we got time. Three times the combined population of Orange County and San Diego County, and only the same amount of breweries as Orange County, yep. or a little bit less. So... We'll see. We're getting there. Yeah, but I'll, I will welcome all people. I mean, what we've got uh, McKellar now. We've got Modern Times is about to open. Obviously, Ballast Point opened up and down Long Beach for a while ago. So yeah, hey, I welcome all good beer. I would. I'd be very happy if I can get to the point where I could walk no more than you know a couple minutes to have another good beer. And like I, I, I had to laugh. I was down here a couple weeks ago, and I stopped at Pure Project. And I, uh, listeners of the podcast will know, I did an interview with Lucky Luke and Transplants Brewing Company uh, a few months back, or well, actually about a year back now. And they are literally separated by a parking lot. You walk out of the parking mm -hmm. lot of one, across a little city street, right. into the parking lot, the next one, boom, two breweries. And I had to laugh because when I came down here to San Diego, I stopped at Pure Project and I walked in because people told me, uh, go to Pure Project, do you like their beers? Enjoyed the beers, walked out, and realized that immediately next door, like 15 feet, was another brewery. It was like... Amplified Ales. Yeah, yeah, Amplified. It was like, how does that work? How do you guys make this work? I love it. So... Well, they set those up. Those are those... Uh, what are they called? Brewery, it's called Brewery Igniter. They're usually like four units that uh, architect and uh, builder come in and they design and build like four breweries. They install all the brewing equipment, and they just lease them out. 
and they have a small tasting room. Yeah, you know, they're like 1,500 square feet to 2,500, oh, yeah. 3,000, depending on which size and the location. I mean, there's they, there's like, I think, four projects in the county. I mean, they were totally tiny, but it was, yeah. it was great to see. Um, all right, so uh, let's get some final questions in here so that, uh, that we sure. can go forth and have some more beer. Uh, what are some favorite flavors that you guys have uh, that you guys want to capture in the beers in the brewery? Mango. Mango. That's one of the next ones. That, pomegranate. Those are going to be some Mango. of the next sours. All right. I'm waiting for the season, though. We're waiting for the seasonal fruit to come get ripe before we tackle those. Well, so that raises the question. Then. And so I guess then you guys are using uh, your uh, ripe actual fruit. I'm, I mean, I know you talked with the guava. I'm, I'm getting, I'm getting yeah, I'm getting, yeah, I did have some guavas on my tree, but it's... We, we source, we try to get as you know as fresh as we can. We're getting stuff that's like, it's been frozen and processed and frozen already for us, but it's still seasonal. But you're you not know. doing like the aseptic purees? No, no, no. Right. Our stuff has to be kept, it comes to us frozen and we have to use it right away or or it's going to go. Or go sideways. Yeah, It'll, right. something else, something funky might start growing in there that we have no control of. Now I kind of want a mango sticky rice for winter. Mm, that sounds, sounds good. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, you say mango, a little lemongrass. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, that would be good. All right. Next. Uh, next step at the Beecham Family Brewery. <laughs> Doc, what what flavors do you want to explore? Well, I'm all with Bill with the the variation of uh, fruits. Plus, I can only wait for the. Masamoto peaches for the oh. barrel age project. Yes, we're going to have that. Yeah, the big barrel age project will be a lot. We'll be doing Mission Impeccable again. We, we have one, of my, one of my famous homebrew recipes. It's been around for over 10 years. Well, I remember it. But, uh, and we have uh, Celador Ales up in uh, LA, yep. and they use Masamoto peaches in a lot of things. Yes. And boy, that's yep. an experience. Yeah, it's it's the I think the best peaches out there for sure that you can find in this area at least. And then you know I we have a lot of freshly emptied bourbon barrels wrapped and ready to go. So I'm waiting to get Bill's going to brew his first batch of his Imperial Stout. Uh, perhaps this perhaps tomorrow. tomorrow. Maybe tomorrow. Yeah. And so I'm waiting for a lot of good chocolate, coffee, vanillins, coconut, you name it, coming out of there. Is there is there something that you guys would want to do with a bourbon barrel that isn't your usual sort of Stout. Well, we're gonna talk to him about the cool ship thing idea. Well, yeah, but we won't do the. Uh, we, well, here, let, 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 I'll kick into the cool ship. So okay, all right. So, all right. So we got barrels. We got all that. Is there anything, anything else fun that you guys want to play with? Well, definitely, we have a project for some spontaneous fermentation going on. We are looking at uh, getting a couple cool ships. Matter of fact, this little room you're sitting in, it, 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 it makes our, our partner, Chris White, the other Chris White, not Chris White from White Labs, uh, cringe <laughs> when I tell him we're going to move these TVs out of here, we're going to encase it in glass, we're going to go ahead and seal it off, go through the concrete 12 inches, put louvered windows, put barrel staves all around here, and spray a case of Cantillon and a case of Drifontaine in, in here oh, to make it a, a hospitable, cool hospitable environment here. and put our cool ship in here. Wait, hold on. Before you, before you do that, can, can you just call me so I can just lay down and just absorb the drops? Oh, certainly. <laughs> in fact, uh, love to get Jean come out here and do the actual spraying, so we'll there see. You. I'll work on that. And then we also want to get a second cool ship and kind of uh, we're taking it from something Arizona Wilderness did, which is 
we have a barrel club called Inner Circle of the Barrel, 300 members. Uh, and what we want to do is take a portable cool ship out to places like Julian mm -hmm. a couple times a year, late fall, early spring. Uh, bring a tote with a few barrels of beer. Yeah. Put, put it in there. Put a pop-up on and invite all our club members out to hang out with us. We'll bring some kegs and do a big bottle share um, and just have a great time while we're waiting for that to get a little bit of wild bugs coming in there. And then yeah, like do Julian that. Apple Orchards. Or oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It, well, and we had we had some of the homebrew clubs did that with uh, Sunday California Homebrews Festival. Yeah. It was up at uh, Lake Casitas. Yes. Yeah, because oh, yeah. I, like anytime I think you get anywhere near agricultural space, you can do that and actually get something. I mean, I know what it's the 78 that's right outside here. In the area. So I was concerned about that, but from talking with uh, Jean at Cantillon, for example, oh, I mean, in the middle of the damn city, yeah, and there's all the industrial traffic. Anyway, he said it's all about having the right environment. So if we already have the Cantillon and, and Drifontine sprayed into the into the wood, it's going to make it more susceptible for the friendly bugs to survive than those unfriendly bugs and thus we'll, we won't have to worry as much about the pollutants so we had uh, Bob Sylvester from St. Somewhere oh yeah on the podcast a couple months back and you know he he just moved from his original location in Tarpon Springs down by the water to a, a new place actually kind of in quote unquote downtown Tarpon Springs and yeah, when he went and rebuilt the brewery, one of the things he did was took like one of those bug sprayer bottles, pressurized up a whole bunch of his beer, and he built up the, the ceiling in his new brewery to be like quadruple wood up at the top, like rafters, like instead of like the minimum mandate, it was like four right, every time. Right, and then sprayed them all. Huh? And he just sprayed them all down with with his beer just to nice. make sure he had that in the air. So I like I like to see that little technique in play because I mean there's a lot of debate. Okay, how much how much comes from the air? How much comes from your barrels? We could do it to that barrel. <laughs> uh, yeah, the whole and, tasting room. Yeah, and, and behind <laughs> us right now is a giant barrel that effectively is floor to ceiling here in a 20, 20 foot warehouse thereabouts. Yeah, about twenty foot. So yeah, it, it's a, a big impressive uh, space behind us. Uh, think London Porter Dinner type idea all right well hey guys before we go you know you guys are obviously new at this particular game but not new at the beer business are there any other thoughts that you want to share with people like you know things that you that you wish people would you know sort of gravitate towards or things that you think that you need to focus on in order to make the business a success well as far as i'm concerned there's only one word and it was uh spoken very well by paul at um CBC a few years back and that's quality mm -hmm. if you're gonna get into the game please 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 make sure that your beers have quality I've turned literally in 40 years tens of thousands if not hundreds of thousands of people onto craft beer uh, and the one thing I'm afraid of is going up to somebody someday and asking if they've had an independent craft beer or a craft beer and them saying, yeah, and I hated it, it sucked. Mm -hmm. So I really want people to, if you can get into this, and a lot of people are right now, always be thinking about quality. You want to brew good beer, you got to be able to dump beer. You need to make sure that doing that, you got to always have quality control. And if the beer's not good enough, don't name it something else. Don't put it in a barrel just to stash it away get rid of it and work on your procedures to make great beer Bill uh, I pretty much agree with that that's 
I, so, the only other thing I would say is for brewers is to take lots of notes and so you can go back and make tweaks or changes or know what worked, know what didn't work and uh, that will help your uh, consistency and your quality. Don't be like Danny at Phantom. <laughs> I love Danny at Phantom though. <laughs> Wait, every, crazy. Beer, every beer is different. Yeah. I know, but, those, uh, but So what? You, That's art. It's, it's, he's an artist. That's different. Every bottle of Phantom is an adventure. Yes, I agree. It's like a box of cookies. Or was it like a box, box of, of chocolates. chocolates? You never know what you're going to get. Exactly. Well, yeah. <laughs> All right. And so, last question before we leave. All right. Obviously, we're all beer obsessives because we're sitting here, we're talking to mics, we've got beers in front of us. So, obviously, we're deeply into beer, but I find that beer is not enough alone for a man to keep his brain moving. There must be other things that you're obsessed with. Bill, something other than beer that you're obsessed with? Animals. Animals? Like rescue animals? Dogs or? All the above, yeah. That, pets, rescue animals, whatever. Training. Oh, there. So, Ned, do you have rescue animals at home? Uh, I do. They're actually parrots that I've rescued from different places. And, par- and parrots, of course, are a time investment because they uh, they tend to last. They do. <laughs> they live as some of them live as old as we do. There you go. We are deeply. Uh, Denny and I are both deeply about uh, rescue animals. Of course, we're both uh, very much dog and cat people. So. Parrots, though, is an interesting thing because most of the parrots in my neighborhood are all wild. Yes. Yeah. And I'm waiting for Wild Parrot Brewing Company in Pasadena to finally open. They're, they've been threatening for a while. So. Nice. All right. Doc, something other than beer. Well, I have three rescue dogs at home. I just want to throw that out there. Rem and I, my wife, have been big proponents of rescuing dogs for the last uh, 15 years or so. But I, anybody who knows me knows I'm fanatical about great wine, great spirits, great cocktails, great food, obviously, and great cigars. And when I have the funnest time when I'm pairing whiskey with beer with cigars with food all simultaneously. So uh, anything that's enjoyable, I'm pretty passionate about. Well, so it sounds like very much like me. You are a uh, a big, passionate proponent of taste experience. Oh yeah, it's all about the taste and having everything has flavor. And so, where the Salon de Gusto and the slow food movement kind of brought it on home, and Mondavi and Jackson with wines and all the micro distilleries and the craft breweries, and having butcher shops back and creameries and all those things, it's all about leaving that lower commodity nationalized products that were important when we were a melting pot country just starting out and trying to get our nationalism to now being able to have all these artisans doing the most amazing things in whatever you want to see when any type of alcohol any type of beverage from sodas to kombucha to you name it to the best cheeses it's so much out there people other than mcdonald's oh one and i know there are a lot of people out there who like to hate on california for various reasons but man one of my favorite aspects of California is if there's something out there that you want, you can find it. It's probably somewhere not too far away from you. It's probably being made by somebody who really deeply cares. Yeah, I agree. So, all right, well, hey, guys, thank you so much, Bill and Bill, or Bill and Doc, Doc and Bill. It's all good. We've had a wonderful time. I've sat down and I've enjoyed uh, quite a few beers. This is a, uh, a great little space, particularly since you guys have been over 30 days. You are killing it. It's like you're pros or something. Thanks, Drew. We appreciate it. It's always great to see you. Thank you. All right. Well, hey, thank you again. And 
Guys, we've been here at the Wild Barrel down here in uh, San Marcos, San Marcos, California, North County, San Diego. Come, uh, come on down uh, there, right next to the uh, the San Diego North County DMV. So, if you need your driver's license renewed, go get your driver's license renewed. Stop in and have a beer, or in whichever order you choose. I think one of those orders might work better than the other. I'm not certain. <laughs> but hey, regardless, if you're in the area, or even if you're not in the area, take a small drive. Come have some beer. You know you want to. Cheers. Thank you. Cheers. Wow. Okay. I, I grant you, he's insane. Yeah, he he's nutty. But in, in such a lovable way. And I'm not kidding. I really do think the first time I ever met Doc was in the back room of the Toronado during their barley wine festival. And he had a luggage case full of rare beer that he was sharing with people. So Doc has always had sort of a, a showmanship or a showman's heart when it comes to presenting beer. And now he gets a chance, uh, both he and Bill, to play around and, and present beers that they want to present. <laughs> That's great, man. I can't wait to try some of their stuff. You'll have to uh, send some up to me eventually. Never. It's all mine. <laughs> yeah, right. Okay, we're going to take a quick break here, and when we come back, we are going to wrap this baby up and get out of here and let you get on with your day. So stick around. We're going to be right back. And now is the time on the show when we dance to the rhythm of truth and answers and the beauty of getting things right. We oh, think. boy, that that was exotic there, man. Good job. Yeah. So it is Q&A time. We're just going to take a couple of real quick questions uh, today. First one actually came into my Facebook feed and I think sparked one of the biggest conversations that's ever happened on my Facebook feed. And we wanted to present it to you guys just so that well, you can give your own feedback and your own take on it. So I'll read it. And then Denny, you can, you can throw out there what you think. Okay. Uh, this comes from uh, Bob Woolman of Leander, Texas. And he says, hi, Drew, something's been bothering me about the latest issue of Zymergy. I wasn't sure who to bother about it. So I've picked you. Sorry. As I'm sure you're aware, the latest issue featured recipes from all of this year's NHC homebrew competition winners. I don't know if anyone else noticed it, but the recipe for this year's winning double IPA recipe is almost an exact clone of the recipe published on the AHA website for Plenty of the Elder. While obviously there's a certain amount of skill in creating a great beer from a recipe, it is a much higher skill to also develop your own recipe. BJCP competitions do normally have the requirement that a beer be produced on your own personal homebrew equipment. I am now wondering if there should also be a stipulation that the entry recipe must be of one's own design. So, Denny... What do you think? Yeah, well, Bob, you are certainly entitled to your opinion, uh, you know, but I have to really disagree with your opinion when you say it's a much higher skill to develop a recipe than to brew the beer. I really feel like a recipe is an important but minor part of the whole process. You give 10 brewers the same recipe and you're going to end up with 10 really different beers uh it the process is what really makes the difference in the way the beer comes out so bottom line is i have absolutely no problem at all with people using other people's recipes uh, i know that my recipe for rye ipa and bourbon vanilla imperial porter 
get used frequently by homebrewers entering competitions. I certainly don't have a problem with that because they have to have the skill to go out there and execute those recipes properly. So, you know, I give you that you believe that the recipe development is more important than the brewing. I don't, and I don't really believe that a lot of homebrewers think that either. Well, and for me, I totally get what Bob is going after, though, because, I mean, of course, I'm a guy who loves to make recipes. But I do agree. I think the, the greater part of the challenge for competition is, you know, on your brewing skills piece. Now, this did actually inspire me to to wonder if maybe for one of my competitions for the club, if we don't actually uh, have a skills challenge where we give everybody the same recipe, and that's what you have to brew. And the person who wins that category is the person who evinces the best brewing skills, independent of recipe creation. I just thought it was yeah, interesting. Yeah, but then, then you have to decide how you would judge that, too, you know? Yeah, well, execution. Execution, execution. Yeah. Good beer rollout. But then, but then whose execution is correct? Whichever one tastes best. <laughs> okay, I can, I can settle for that. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mean, it'd still be judged the same way. Yeah. I'm, well, I mean, you know, I, so you would you would judge you would pick like a BJCP style and judge it to BJCP standards. Yep. Okay, works for me, man. So our next question comes from Bill Ranta via email. Bill says, "Hey Drew, I'm an obsessed listener to your podcast, and I highly respect your opinion." He's never met you, has he? All right. <laughs> I would love to replicate a version of Shock Top's pretzel wheat beer and would like some ideas. It comes under the style of American dark wheat beer, and I would like to get your opinion on the following. What malts do you think would bring a pretzel flavor to this beer? I was thinking of adding some biscuit malt to a traditional German dark wheat grain bill with some caramel malt for some sweetness. I was thinking of putting real pretzels in the mash. But do you feel that a tincture would work best? I know you're the tincture king. What kind of hops would play well for this kind of profile? Would a USO5 yeast work with this beer? Or what would be your suggestion? Okay, buddy, take it. So, all right, Bill, I actually had a flashback when I was reading your question. Because one, I didn't know Shock Top had a pretzel wheat beer. But my good friend, uh, Johnny Lieberman, who now writes for Motor Trend Magazine, back when he homebrewed, he actually made a pretzel beer, but his pretzel beer was much more literal, where he had a friend bring in, I don't know, I think it was like 20 pounds of frozen Philadelphia pretzels, straight from Philadelphia, and he mashed them. So, let's start with with looking at what you're breaking down here. Uh, So, you're going to aim for an American dark wheat beer, so your USO5 is a fine choice. Uh, You just want something that's basically clean, not fruity, and doesn't have a lot of aromatics to it, so USO5 fits that one pretty well. Malts for this, uh, biscuit or aromatic would be a good base. I would also probably use some Caravian. I would probably avoid using uh, any caramel. For me, I think if you're going for pretzel and bready type things, you want those toasty malts. You want those Munichs. You want those... those Big, bready, chewy things. I don't think the caramel sweetness is actually going to help you at all. So, hey, Can I ask a question here real quick? Mm-hmm. Would you use biscuit and caravian or one or the other? Probably not. Uh, my my personal preference would probably be for caravian, just because I, I think I like that one better. Uh-huh. Uh, and I've, I've had some biscuit malts that I like and some that I don't. And they, right. they vary by maltster. Right. But I mean, I would totally, I would totally set this up so that it's basically... Munich plus wheat plus some caravan and plus whatever you're going to use to get your, your dark color. 
Mm-hmm. Hops, just go for something spicy. I wouldn't, I wouldn't go for anything that you're going to try and get a big distinctive character out of because, again, you're really trying to go for that pretzely thing, right? Uh, I would even actually uh, play around with the idea of doing a salt rim. You can totally do real pretzels in the mash. Like I said, my friend Johnny did that. He did it with frozen pretzels. They had flown in from Philadelphia. Uh, you do have to be a little careful. Something went wrong with that beer because it ended up tasting like strawberries. But <laughs> I don't assume I, you're going to want strawberries. I, and I would also say that if you if you are going to use pretzels, which I don't, I wouldn't do, but if you are going to use them, you're going to need to use a lot of pretzels. Like you mentioned, Johnny using 20 pounds. You know, that's that's the kind of, of bulk you're going to need to be looking at. So you may want to find a way to suggest the pretzels rather than actually putting them in the mash, huh? Right, and so I think that's where the toasty, uh, toasty bready malts come into play. Yeah, well, but I mean, you know, he's talking about a pretzel tincture, and I just can't see that really having much to it. Can you? No, because uh, I mean, I don't really feel like you can tincture something that's mostly starch. You know, so yeah, so that, that exactly. would be the thing. Exactly. That, that would be my take on it. So yeah, if you're going to use pretzels, you got to mash them. Uh, I don't necessarily think you have to, but you know, go forth, use some toasty aromatic malts, and I think that will do you uh, pretty well. Yep. I agree. And your idea of a salt room on the glass is pretty interesting, too. That could that could be really cool. Yeah, I think that'd be fun. Do salt yep. on one side, do mustard on the other. <laughs> maybe, make, maybe make a mustard salt. Yeah, of course, ground some uh, mustard seeds with salt and use yeah. that the room. Ta-da. Okay, here we go. <laughs> now it's getting weird. It's always weird, buddy. You just haven't paid attention. Uh, I guess that's true. All right. Let's tip this thing. Okay, that means that it's time for me. I've got the quick tip for today. If uh, you've been brewing for any length of time, maybe even if you're a new brewer, you probably have put together a brewing system that you use over and over again, but maybe you've got some extra equipment sitting around. Maybe you've got uh, more than one brewing system. My tip is to look at what your various pieces of equipment and brewing systems do best and combine them to get what you need for your brew day. Here's an example that made me think of this. I'm about to uh, start playing with some cryo hops and making very, very heavy whirlpool and late hop additions in my beers. Now, I really love brewing with my grain father, uh, but I have a hard time when I put a lot of hops into the grain father because the filter on the pump has a tendency to clog up for me and it's it's really hard for me to uh, get that beer out. Not to mention the fact that uh, I only have a 110 volt version and so it can take a while to get to a boil in my grain father. On the other hand, it has great temperature control, it's easy to do step mashes with it, and the recirculation system is really great. So my intention is to do the mash in my grandfather, recirculating, uh, maybe even doing a step mash, haven't decided on that. But then when the mash is done, pump the wort over to my normal converted keg kettle and do the boil in there along with the whirlpool hopping. The boil will go much faster. The whirlpool hops will work a lot better and not clog anything up in that particular kettle. So it'll be like kind of the the best of both worlds on those systems for me. So there you go. Look at what you got. Think about what the strong points of each one are and look out of the box and put things together in an unusual fashion. There you go. And, and that's kind of like what I do with my chilling rig before I got the jaded 
where I had an immersion coil and I had a counterflow chiller and I combined the two together because I needed better chilling power. Just remember there are pieces of equipment that work great the way they're intended and there are pieces of equipment that work better when you use them not the way they're intended. Think outside the box. Think outside, outside the brewery. The box. Okay, so what do you got for something other today? Well, so something other... I am a huge fan of the Batman the Animated Series, you know, back from the, the 90s. You know, everybody says that, you know, you have particular images of Batman that get stuck in your head, at least if you're a geek. And that's the one that is a real strong stick in my head. And it's no surprise if you read the history of the Batman Animated Series that they were heavily influenced by a series of cartoons by the Charles Fleischer, or sorry, by the Fleischer Brothers Studios that were all about Superman, that were made like within a couple of months of Superman uh, debuting, so the early 40s. And they were some of the most expensive cartoons ever produced because the Fleischer Brothers basically uh, gave Paramount a ridiculous uh, price tag to go make these shorts because they didn't want to make them, and Paramount agreed. I mean, it ended up being, I think it was like $50,000 per episode in 1940 money. So, but these Fleischer shorts, they've been available in various, various states and various collections and whatnot. But there's a guy out there who has made a collection that he calls the Mild Manners Superman, aka the Fleischer shorts, where he's gone through all the various public domain sources and rebuilt what he thinks is the most perfect version of these shorts in terms of the music cues and the timings and you know the color correction and everything else they're all available on his website and on uh, youtube so if you've never actually seen the fleischer uh, shorts from superman there are i think 18 of them and they are fantastic and they had a surprising amount of influence on animation history in ways that you may not have ever realized if you've never seen them you know, and one of one of the advantages to being uh, older than dirt like me is that I actually watched those when I was growing up. Now, they they weren't new; <laughs> they've been around for a little while. But I have seen a fair number of those, and they are really outstanding and interesting historical documents, and also influential in the Superman canon. Because if you stop and you think about that whole spiel that always gets read off at the beginning of Superman, you know, able to leap tall buildings in a single bound. Well. In the early history of Superman, he didn't fly. He leapt. And the Fleischer <laughs> brothers actually went and asked the, the Superman property rights holders if they could make him fly instead of having him leap because leaping on the cartoon looked silly. And so because of that, Superman gained the power of flight. Oh, cool. I uh, didn't know that. But that's the reason why he's always able to leap tall buildings in a single bound because that's what he used to do. <laughs> Of course, if he just jumped, he could jump over him too, you know? Exactly. All righty. So I guess that's it for today. Thank you all for listening to Experimental Brewing. You can catch all of our latest adventures and writings by going to our website, which is experimentalbrew.com. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, where we're at EXP Brewing. We're on Facebook. We're on Instagram. I hang out on a whole bunch of different beer discussion forums, mostly the AHA forum. You can find Drew on the Homebrewing subreddit or the Homebrewing channel on Slack. If you want to ask us a question, suggest topics or recipes, experiments, or just rant and rave, you can email us at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. Or if you want to email each one of us individually, I'm Denny at experimentalbrew.com, and he's Drew at experimentalbrew.com. And don't forget, you can always leave us a voicemail 
at 626-765-1AL. So until next time, remember to always brew experimentally. Or brew wacky. And we'll see you on the next episode of Experimental Brewing. Experimental Brewing.